0: Listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to CityLightSouth.org.au. Jonah 1:17, and then all of two. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress. And he answered me, I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Tyson.
1: Good morning again. Um, We're going to pick up where Josh left us uh, last week. Um, at the end, very end of chapter one, we are at rock bottom. We are in the darkness um, of not only the bottom of the sea, but of the inside of a fish. Um, I don't know if you could relate to Jonas. It'd probably not. You've probably not been there um, yourself. Uh, but you might think of a time when you felt like you were at rock bottom when everything that you could potentially, you know, every way out seemed blocked, when when there just wasn't a lot of hope. Um for Jonah here, I, I don't know if you spend much time looking at memes. There's um there's one sort of meme that has two images on the left and right. On the left says how it started, on the right says how it's going. Well for Jonah If you think about back to chapter 1, he said, you know, chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I'm going to get up, or he says he got up to flee to Tarshish from God's presence. Here he is, the man of God, thinking, you know what? God's told me to do X, and I don't want to do X, so I'm going to do Y. And he gets up to flee, and he's very powerful in that moment. He's, you know, I know better than God. And then how is it going? Well, here we are, chapter 2, verse 2. He's deep inside a pit. Literally on death's door. He can't sink any lower. Um, I don't know what your sort of rock bottom thing that you might be able to relate to is for you. Maybe it was because of your own sin, poor choices that you made, like Jonah. But maybe for you, it was your rock bottom was because of someone else's choices. Um, Someone sinned against you or you got caught up in the unjust and sinful systems of the world and not landed you at rock bottom, or maybe you just have no idea how you got there. But for whatever reason, however you ended up there, the the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel just seems so far away, And, and nobody really understands your situation. Nobody's coming to help, you know, and if you've never been there, if you've never felt that, it's probably because you're young. And I'm I'm a kind of optimistic person, um, but I can tell you that life does not get easier as you get older. There there are going to be moments and seasons of joy, and there are going to be moments and seasons of great sadness, those dark nights of the soul, where, where even Jonah's plight might seem a little bit cushy to you in those moments. But friends, I, I want to tell you today that God's mercy, God's mercy lives at rock bottom. That's the address of God's mercy. God himself has plumbed the depths of Sheol and the grave. He's been to rock bottom. And that's where he does his best work. And the reason we sometimes don't see that is that we, we get conditioned from a young age, from an early age, to, to think that pain and suffering are signs that God is mad at us or that he's left the building. But that's not true. This morning, I want to expose some other lies like that that we tend to believe. Lies that kind of pour cold water on the fire of God's mercy. There, there are four lies which... Uh, really here get destroyed by Jonah's life and by Jonah's prayer, this sinner's prayer he prays in chapter 2. And here they are. Lie number one. Number one, sin does not have serious consequences, especially if I'm one of God's favorites. Lie, Lie number two, God will never put me in a situation that I can't handle. Lie number three, if I sin big enough, God will kick me out of the family. He's done with me. And then lie number four, joy comes when and after God takes my pain away. So we're going to dive into this prayer of Jonah and expose these lies and find the beautiful truth uh, that's so much better. Um, if, you're, if you're ever looking for proof that there are two kinds of knowledge in this life, there's knowledge that comes from books and, and knowledge that comes from experience. You, you need to look at Jonah. Uh, Jonah was a prophet, Now, to be a prophet in that day, you had to have certain qualifications. You had to have a CV. You couldn't just go around and call yourself a prophet. And one of the things you needed to do to be a prophet is you needed to know the Bible. Now, not the full 66 books of the Bible that we have today, but the first five books of Moses and maybe a few of the Psalms. You needed to know those books backwards and forwards, and Jonah did. If you would have been in a Bible college or taken a theology class with Jonah, he would have been the guy sitting in the front row, raising his hand. He knew all the answers. He would have had an HD on every assignment. He knew the Bible. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, he's there with the sailors on the ship in the middle of the storm, and he says to them as he has a way of self-introduction, he says, I worship the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of the heavens, the one who made the sea and the dry land full marks for Jonah, right? Later on in chapter 4, though, after God shows, uh, mercy to Jonah's enemies, here's, here's what he says. Here's another good, um, amount of knowledge that he has. He says, I knew God, he's speaking to God, he says, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate. He's quoting Exodus here. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. He's just showing off how much of the Bible he has memorized. He knows a lot of stuff. That's the knowledge that comes from books. But sometimes you can know something But you don't really know something until you experience it, until you live it. And Jonah knew that God created the ocean, but somehow he thought that he could hop on a man-made boat and get to the other side of the ocean and get away from God and away from God's plan for his life. It didn't work out so well. He couldn't wrap his mind around the idea. He knew God was gracious and compassionate, but God, surely you can't be gracious and compassionate to them because I don't like them. How could you like them? I mean, he thought he knew better than God, so he knew, but he didn't really know. There's another truth that Jonah and that you and I have to learn from experience, and it's this. It's the reality that sin... Even sin that God has forgiven, even forgiven sin, has consequences in this life, sometimes serious consequences. And and when you and I sin, it's not just a private thing that we just take into the confessional booth and it just disappears into the ether. When we disobey, when we defy, when we run away from God, like Jonah did, there are real world consequences. And you might be thinking, wait a minute. The gospel is that the grace of God covers sin. A multitude of sins Forgive sins. Grace is greater than our sin. And yes, yes, and amen to all of that. We are saved from the eternal penalty of sin. But the immediate consequences of sin are not always removed. Sometimes the consequences are punitive, like a fine or a jail sentence. You know, we have And I think you know this, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ who we will be worshiping Jesus with around the throne forever and right now are in prison for doing unspeakable things in this life. The grace of God is amazing. It is eternal, but it does not wipe away the immediate consequences of sin in this life. Sometimes the natural effects of sin are things like um, broken trust, relationships that cannot be mended, or, or physical injury. Uh, let me give you an example. Suppose you are a parent, you're, you're a Christian, and, and you sin by speaking harshly to your child. Um, by God's grace, that sin can and will be forgiven. If you're in Christ, that sin will not condemn you when you stand before him on the last day. But that sin, especially if it's repeated week after week, will damage your child, will, will damage the relationship you have with your child. It may never be the same again, depending on the degree of harshness involved. Here's, here's another one. Suppose you sin sexually with another person that you're not married to. Again, that sin is gloriously forgivable by God's grace, will not condemn you. Your guilt and shame will be overwhelmed by the kindness and mercy of God. But just like King David discovered after he sinned in this way, the consequences of sexual sin in this life are often devastating to the people involved. Broken trust may never be restored in this life, family relationships can be affected for generations. You know, and if you're not a Christian, the consequences of sin go on and on and on forever. The gospel that we believe as Christians is not that God loves you and thinks you're great just the way that you are. Because if that was the case, then God would have sent you a greeting card and a box of chocolates and it would have been done. But he didn't. He sent his only son to be slaughtered, to pay the penalty for your sin. Because sin steals, sin kills, sin destroys. As we grow as Christians, we come to know this deeply. And sin goes from being something that we enjoy and, and think is funny or, or just, you know, part, you know, it's part of the air we breathe, to becoming something that we go to war against because it's not who we are anymore. Our hearts are united as Christians with the heart of God. And so we become people, we, we want to warn people off of sin and its devastating consequences. We want to see people rescued by God's mercy from sin and its consequences. Jonah knew this. He knew as he sat there in the darkness in the belly of the fish, he knew that it was his sin that held him there. Just like Jesus on the cross, it was your sin and my sin that held him there. He knew, and so what did he do? He cried out to God in prayer, the only one who is big enough to fix the problem that he made. He cried out to God. He he knew that it was himself, that it was his own inflated sense of self-importance, his ego that landed him where he was. He cries out to God, and guess what? God heard him. We'll see that in a moment. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the consequences for sin were still there. Jonah was still inside the fish. He was in a dark place. He was alone. I suspect that if there was like a, one of those no-fly lists, no-sale lists, his name would have been right there at the top for the rest of his life. But that's not the last word. The sin, even when consequences and the fallout linger on, It does not define who you are if you are in Christ. That's the gospel. See, God defines who you are. And he can and he will use the consequences of sin, even in the life of a Christian, sometimes very serious consequences as discipline, as means, as tools of a loving father to change you and shape you and draw you into his heart, that you will experience more and more of his grace. That's what he wants. More than your happiness, he wants your holiness. He wants your change. If Jonah could speak to us today, I think he would say this. He would say, God will stop at nothing to accomplish his purposes in and through you, to shape you and mold you into the image of Jesus. Which brings us to lie number two. We, we can often, even if we don't say this out loud, we can often sort of internalize this, that, that God will never give me more than I can handle. Now, some people take that from a misreading of Scripture where, where Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. But that's, a div, that's, that's not the same thing as saying God will never give me more than I can handle. It's just, you know, look at Jonah's life. Look at Jonah chapter 2. Look at his prayer in verse 3. Here's what He says, And these words should make us a bit uncomfortable. He says, when you threw me into the depths, speaking to God, when you threw me into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. These same words are found in the Psalms. David writes these words. And you might be thinking, but wait a minute. God caused the storm, okay, I get that, but the sailors... They're the ones that threw him overboard, right? God didn't actually pick him up and and throw him there. Why is he blaming God for what they did? Because he recognizes this truth that can make us uncomfortable sometimes, and that is that God is sovereign over our circumstances, even the tough ones. He's, He's not the author of evil. We are responsible. People are responsible for their own sinful choices. But God is in complete control of the events of our lives, such that not a single hair in your head can, can fall out without his permission. Who, whoever came up with the idea that God will not give you more than you can handle really needs to talk to Jonah, because here he is, he's in over his head, literally, from his own choices. You know, or you could, they could talk to Joseph, who was also deep in a pit. Not from his own choices, but from the sinful choices of other people. Or or better yet, talk to Jesus, who was in over his head with sorrow, grief, and pain because of the choice he made to rescue sin-saturated people on the cross. It was way more than he could handle in his humanity. Which is why on the night before his death, he was with his closest friends. He needed them in that moment. He spent hours calling out to his father, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He learned perfect obedience, as it says in Hebrews, through what he suffered. The God we know, not just from books, but from life, is a God who does not hold back. He does not hold anything back from you or from me to rescue us. He didn't hold back his own son, and he will not hold back circumstances in your life good, bad, hard, easy, that will shape you into the very likeness of his son. When Jonah sat there in the darkness. You know, if I was him, I'd be thinking, well, that's it. This is a really weird way to die. I mean, drowning in the sea is not enjoyable, I'm sure, but it's kind of normal, like, you read someone drowned and you're thinking that's tragic, but it's sort of, it happens. Someone got swallowed by a fish, that's weird. It's not a, it's not a normal chain of events. Um, it's kind of like you expect like a James Bond villain to die sort of way. But, but here he is. Uh, Jonah is convinced in his prayer, if you read it carefully, that the fish is not going to be his demise. The fish is actually a vehicle of his salvation, he was safer in the, inside the fish than he was on the boat. It's, um, the story of Jonah is actually a parallel story uh, to the story of God's people. If you think about, if you know a little bit of the Old Testament, it's the story of God's relationship with his people, Israel. And he warned them, he said, you know, if you are careful to follow the laws and the, the instructions that I give you, then you will be my people and I will be your God and everything will go well for you. But if you don't follow the instructions that I give you, then you will be punished. You'll be disciplined. You'll be put out of the land. And that's exactly what happened to them again and again. Uh, Israel, God's people would go and they would worship other gods and, and, and worship idols. They would leave their first love and God comes to them and, and disciplines them, by, not by destroying them, but he takes a remnant of them, a small group of them, and sends them to another place, a far off, a distant place, a place seemingly far away from God and, and the blessing of the land. But he does that not because he hates them. He does that to preserve them, just like Jonah's being preserved in the, in the belly of the fish God's people were preserved when they were in exile. God doesn't stand back, you see, and let his people destroy themselves. He steps in to rescue us, to bring about our repentance. And and that brings us to lie number three, and it's this. If I sin big enough, then God is done with me. I'm out of the family, off the team. Jonah, you see, was a prophet. He knew the Bible, as we said before, and in spite of that, he, he stands in the face of God and says, no, thank you, God. I know better than you. I am not going to do what you tell me to do. Not your will, but mine be done. And you might think at that moment that God, if he was like one of the Greek gods or one of the gods of, you know, the ancient world, that he would have exploded in a rage in that moment and said, how dare you speak back to me? How dare you defy my wishes? And instead, what does he do? He chases him down with a storm and saves him with a fish. Not to kill him, but to bring about his repentance, to restore him. There's, there's humor here. God has a sense of humor, in case you didn't know that. Look at verse 4. Jonah here is giving his perspective. He says, here I am inside the belly of the fish. He says, I've been banished. He's not just in the doghouse here, but he's knocking on the doors of hell itself. There's no way back except that there is. is confident. He says, once more, I will look towards your holy temple. That's a a euphemism for for prayer. He's going to turn his face and focus on where God is there, his presence in the temple. Somehow he knew in that moment that despite his sin, despite his rebellion, despite the fact that God should be livid with him, that God is still for him. God is still approachable. Verses five and six, here's the humor. Here's Jonah, the man of God. He's sinking. He's sinking like a rusty old boat in the water. He's wearing a seaweed hat. It's like a scene from Spongebob or something. Like it's, I sank to the foundations of the mountains, which is interesting in itself. The ancient Israelites, um, they weren't known for having a fondness of the ocean. They didn't know much about it. It was kind of the great unknown, the mystery. But here he uses this language of the mountains having foundations that is actually quite... Scientifically accurate. If you, if, I don't know if you know this, fun fact. You might, this might help you in a quiz night some night. But uh, you know the tallest mountain in the world is not the one you think it is? It's not Mount Everest. Mount Everest, from base to peak, is 8,850 meters. But there's a mountain that's even taller than that. Um, anybody ever been to Hawaii? No? OK, well, the largest volcano on the largest island in Hawaii, Mauna Kea, from base to peak, is over 9,000 meters. It's just that half of it is underwater. And so it doesn't reach the highest point above sea level. If you picture Jonah sinking to the foundations of the mountains, if that mountain has anything to it, he's sunk four kilometers underwater. That's about as low as you can get and not cave in from the water pressure. He says, this is why he says, the earth's gates shut behind me. I'm done. It's over. But then in the end of verse 6, completely turns around and he says this. He says, then you raised my life from the pit. It's like, I don't know if you've ever been in a swimming pool and you've had something that has air inside and tried to like hold it down on the bottom to see, you know, it's it. The further down you go, the harder it is to keep it down. And as soon as you let go, it just pops right back up to the surface. That's what Jonah does right here. He just pops right back up to the surface. You raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. Because when he landed there at rock bottom, what did he find? Not condemnation, but grace. Mercy lives at rock bottom. Friends, the moment you repent, you're restored. Not not later, not when you grovel in the dirt, but the moment you repent, you are restored. Because restoring sinners is what God does, it's who He is. If you repent, you will be restored. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a guarantee, sealed by the blood of Jesus. The moment you repent, you are restored. And that brings us to the very last lie that Jonah's prayer addresses. And it's, the truth here is a bit harder to see, but I want you to see it in this text. I'll start with the lie. Here it is. Joy comes when and after God takes my pain away. In other words, when stuff changes for the better, that's when I finally get to experience joy. First, I repent. I say sorry to God and make some promises to do better next time. And then he rewards me with, a, with, with answered prayer, with better circumstances. And a lot of us, myself included, think, that well, that's the way life's supposed to work. But when it doesn't work out that way, when our circumstances don't change quickly or at all, We're left really disappointed. And Jonah himself is going to struggle with this later on. Um, He thinks he's meant to be rewarded for his repenting, for his good behavior. But for now, here in chapter 2, he's just grateful to be alive. Verse 7 It's a summary of the the downward journey that we've just described. Jonah's life was fading away in the waters. But instead of despairing or trying desperately to save himself, he prays. And God hears him in that moment, and he sends salvation in the form of a fish. This weird vessel of salvation is going to be the vehicle that transports him from the grave back to the shore so he can get on with his mission of preaching to the people in Nineveh. But before he gets to shore... Before there's any guarantee that there's life on the other side of the fish's stomach, he does something really weird. He worships. He worships. Verse eight, he looks with compassion on those who cling to idols. Just like the, remember the sailors on the boat. they didn't know God, they worshiped idols. And he looks to, uh, like, with compassion on them. He says that, you know, they have no idea how to save themselves. And the, later on, he's going to go to Nineveh, and, the, and they're the same way. They have no idea. They're ignorant. Like you and me, we look to everything under the sun to bring us joy except the one thing that can. We look to our circumstances rather than to the faithful love of God. Verse 9, Jonah says right here, right now, surrounded by seaweed and fish guts, I am going to worship. This is a a worship time right now in the darkness, in these terrible circumstances. I'm going to thank God for saving me from drowning. I'm going to promise to obey his call. I'm going to cherish the Lord who saves and nothing else. See, the order of events here is so important. Jonah doesn't wait until he was back on dry land to worship. He doesn't wait until he knows how it's going to turn out. He worships then and there because God was there with him. And that's the reason we sing. That's the reason we rejoice. Because God is with you. God is with me. No matter what your circumstances are like, God is there. Joy does not come only after God takes away the pain. After he heals me. After he gives me what I'm asking for. After he does whatever, fill in the blank, whatever you're facing right now. Where God is, is there, right there with you, in your pain, in your brokenness, in your confusion. He is there. He is with you, and that is where joy comes in. My prayer is that these truths will help us to, to really come to know and see and appreciate and celebrate God's mercy in new ways. His, his kindness that was new this morning when you woke up and will be new tomorrow morning. Truth number one, sin is, is serious. That's, that's why we need God's mercy. The consequences of sin are serious and yet become opportunities for us to experience God's mercy anew. Truth number two, God will give you more than you can handle. He'll give you whatever it takes to make you more like Jesus, to help you know him. Truth number three, the moment you repent, the moment you turn your eyes on Jesus, you are restored. Whether you're at rock bottom or you've simply been distracted, the moment you repent, you are restored. And then truth number four, joy comes from knowing that God is right there with you in your pain. He's not waiting for you to come out on the other side. He is there with you. I want to close by just mentioning one avenue that you might come to know mercy, God's mercy, not just from what I say, but from your own experience. Uh, there's an old saying, I guess. Well, I, Actually, I don't even know if it's a saying, but some people say it that fi- about fish. Fish do not know that they're wet. Maybe just in my family. Contrary to Disney folklore... Sea creatures do not spend most of their lives wondering what it's like to live on dry land. But, you know, there's something that a lot of us can do with our sort of tics and habits and, and, and sin and mindset is that we just kind of settle into this little cocoon that this, this is just how it is. This is how we are. This is how, it, this is how it's always going to be. Um. There's no point in trying to be different. But here's the thing, friends. Life is not, this life, if you're a Christian, it's not simply a waiting room for heaven that we just sit around and look at our phones and and eventually God's going to come and just snatch us out of here. See, life is more like a practice field. What you do, what you think, the effort you expend here is preparing you for what will come. This is the place where we learn to experience God's mercy firsthand. Every time we attempt and sometimes fail to trust him and obey him, his mercy is right there every time we fail. You know? It's like, you know, if you ever watch a game, there's always the the person on the sidelines that brings water and Gatorade to to the athletes when they're, they're tired. That's God's mercy. It's right there. Right there the moment you need it. So let me ask you, what lies are you believing now that might be uh, hindering you from being honest about your sin and failure and turning to God and receiving his mercy? Mercy that forgives, mercy that heals, mercy that restores, mercy that teaches, mercy that is with you, mercy that brings you up from the depths to ride on the heights of real change. Real joy. So you're not just a fish that's destined to live in the water until you die. You are God's masterpiece. You're, you're a work in progress. One day you will hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant, spoken over you. That is your future. So, so now you have this choice whether or not you, could, you want to take hold of that and live like you believe that that's coming. We get to learn in this life to speak the mercy of God to our souls. You can change. You can be generous. You can stop speaking harshly to your kids. Whatever, whatever it is, you can resist sin. You can live with contentment and thankfulness even in the midst of a global pandemic. You can share your faith. You can have time in the Bible every day. You can have and experience soul-liberating joy. Don't ever let anyone tell you that you cannot have these things because the Spirit of God lives in you and could produce this fruit in you, and he will. Just believe that God is there wherever you are, and then step out and receive the mercy that he has for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy that was new this morning. Thank you for your grace, which is amazing and freeing. Thank you that it's by your grace that we live, that we, we, we draw our, our breath. Thank you, God, that you are not finished with any one of us, that you are day by day, changing us from glory to glory to be more and more like like Jesus. Thank you that this is not only possible, but this is inevitable because of the truth of your grace, because of the power of your spirit at work within us. May we believe this. Help us, Lord, now we pray as we come to the table. Lord, would you Use these, this moment, use these elements to remind us and confirm in us once again your love for us, that we, covered by the blood of Jesus, united in Christ, that we are not condemned, but we stand as recipients of your mercy, and we will be forever. And we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.